Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. I'm Ben. I'm Sarah. Thank you all so much for listening today. This is our 26th episode. Which is insane. Yes. We've got over 30 movies on the list now, and uh, I'm just so appreciative of everyone who tunes into this show. You could probably fit everyone who listens to this show regularly into, like, a single room. That means we could have the most awesome party. Sure, that's true. The party for Scream Scene listeners. Yeah. (laughs) But thank you so much for listening to the show and continuing to support it. We love every single one of you. Uh, How are you doing today, Sarah? Things are ramping up at work. And it's pretty sweet, but also stressful. Just got a radio show yeah. at work. Yeah, that's right. A music show. Well, yeah, because you have had a um, a talk program for a long time. Yeah, it's been more of a podcast than what I would call a radio program. This is an actual weekly music program, which is pretty sweet. I'm also very excited about what we're watching today. Sure, sure. Yeah, absolutely. This week's episode, we are watching the classic 1931 Universal Studios Boris Karloff version of Frankenstein. This is our second Frankenstein that we've watched? Yes, yes, uh, because we watched the 1910 version from Thomas Edison's factory of filmmaking. (laughs) Which was pretty good. Yeah, it was not It was not bad. It was very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. When we were ranking those shorts, it ranked pretty high. It's still, like, pretty high up on the list. Like, it's in the, like... Top 20? Top 20, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I'm super stoked about this episode because I love Mary Shelley. I love her mom, Mary Wollstonecraft. I love Frankenstein, the novel. I will love this episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, uh... <laughs> You're the big Frankenstein. There's a reason why, like, on the podcast banner, like, you're a Frankenstein and I'm a Dracula. Yeah, that's very true. Before we dive into the movie, why don't you tell us a little bit about Mary Shelley and her family and her friends and the circumstances <laughs> that led to the creation of Frankenstein, as well as the entire genre of science fiction, yeah. I guess? <laughs> yeah. Mary Shelley was born August 30th, 1797, so we kind of just missed her birthday. Yeah, we just missed the birthday, that's right. And she passed away in 1851, and she was such a prolific writer of both fiction and nonfiction, but she's become most well-known for the gothic novel Frankenstein, or the modern Prometheus. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it was originally published in 1818, but it's had a few different publishing dates. Yeah, because there's there's two versions, right? There's like the 1818 version, and then there's a a later revision. Yeah, well, there's kind of like two revisions, uh, but like the one that most people read was published in 1831. And Mm -hmm. that's the one that actually is like, yeah, it's by Mary Shelley. I, uh, I remember in university, my science fiction literature professor insisted that we read the 1818 version, and we had to, like, specifically go out and get that version, whereas I think, what class did you read it in? Was it gothic literature? 
Uh, I believe I had to read it twice. Once was in the year-long intro to English literature kind of thing, mm -hmm. and then the other time I read it was when I did a whole course on romanticism. Okay. I just seem to recall that you had read the other version, like the 1837 version for your course, because I just remember, like, when we compared libraries when we moved in together, you had one and I had the other. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Mary Shelley had a lot to live up to when she was born, because her parents are two very big deals. Her mom is Mary Wollstonecraft, who wrote Vindication of, for the Rights of Women in the 1700s, and Mary Wollstonecraft is, like, a super big deal. Yeah, like, first wave feminism in, like, personified form, right? Exactly. Sure. And her dad is political philosopher William Godwin. If you wanted to personify goth girl teen, Mary Shelley would be it. She learned how to spell her name from her mother's tombstone, like tracing over it. Oh boy. I'll go into more detail about her relationship with Percy Shelley later, but she lost her virginity with Percy at her mom's grave. Yeah. Part of the reason why I think Mary Shelley felt a lot of pressure to live up to her parents is because Mary Wollstonecraft died due to an infection after giving birth to Mary Shelley. Mm. And yeah, this pressure to live up to her parents' legacy haunted both Mary Shelley and her half-sister Fanny Imlay, mm. uh, who was her half-sister through her mom. Mm. And Fanny, her half-sister, uh, was quite... struggled with this legacy as well. Uh, when Fanny was 22, she committed suicide, um, and she was found wearing Mary Bolstonecraft's monogrammed bodice, um, and that was in 1816. Uh, yeah, that's <laughs> kind of going to be what this whole Oof. thing is about, is, <laughs> yeah. like, kind of hilariously gothy things tied with, like, a lot of... Tragedies. Tragedies, yeah. While Mary Shelley didn't have any formal education, which is ironically against what Wollstonecraft w was writing about in her Vindication on the Rights of Women, her exposure to the critical thinking, philosophy, and arts and literature through her father's friend circle kind of filled that hole. Yeah, I mean, she was like essentially homeschooled in the sense that her parents were two of the smartest people in England, so you just read everything in the family library and now you're a genius. Exactly. And she was so entrenched in her father's philosophical teachings that she began seeing a follower of his, uh, and that's Percy Shelley. Uh, so they started seeing each other in 1814, and I will just point out that Mary Shelley was 17 and Percy was 22, uh -huh. but also already married. He was estranged, though, from his wife, who was also pregnant, by the way. Percy Shelley's kind of a little shithead. Because Percy and Mary loved each other so much, they decided to travel Europe together, and they brought Mary's stepsister, because uh, her dad had remarried after the death of Wollstonecraft, her stepsister Claire Claremont, which is like best name. They traveled Europe, the three of them, throughout 1814. A bit of detail about these travels, because you can see some relation between these travels and some inspiration into Frankenstein, is... um. They traveled along France and down the Rhine River through Germany, and they stopped in this one town named Gernsheim. This town is around 10 miles away from a castle that is actually named Frankenstein's Castle, mm. 
or Castle Frankenstein, perhaps mm -hmm. in English. There's many myths and legends with this castle, but the one that uh, is most relevant is um, in around the middle of the of the 17th century. This guy named Johann Conrad Dippel was born in the castle, and he later became an alchemist there. Uh, he developed Dippel's oil, as he called it, uh, from animals, and it was considered an elixir of life. And uh, there were rumors that he was also studying anatomy through cadavers. Uh-huh. I will mention that there is no evidence that Mary Shelley visited the castle, that she would have known about the castle, except for the fact that she happened to travel to this neighboring town. Mm -hmm. um, there's no mention of it in her journal or her travelogues. And it's also noteworthy that the name Frankenstein, uh, like Frankenstein's castle, mm -hmm. Franks is like the name of a Germanic tribe. Yes. Probably butchering that pronunciation because it would be a German pronunciation. And then Stein is German for stone. Mm -hmm. So it's a pretty ordinary common name. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah, so... The um, the Germanic tribe Franks is actually the origin of the ethnicity that gives its name to the nation France. Oh, cool. I didn't realize that. So yeah, there's no concrete evidence to support this castle with this legend actually being any kind of direct inspiration. But it's kind of like... You know, it's so similar mm -hmm. that I think it's worth mentioning. I'm sure the tourism industry in that oh, yeah. part of Germany really appreciates having that castle around. Yeah, uh, <laughs> they do like Halloween tours of course. all the time. Yeah, yeah it's great. Yeah. So that's as Mary and Percy Shelley and Claire Claremont were touring Europe in 1814. Um, when they made it back to England, Mary was pregnant mm -hmm. uh, and she had it. Um, a prematurely born daughter who died uh, not too long after. And this is in 1816 uh, that they returned. That's when Fanny uh, committed suicide and also Percy's first wife committed suicide. Um, two months after Fanny, actually. And now that Percy was a widower, they legitimately got married. Later in 1816, the Shelleys would spend a summer near Geneva, Switzerland, uh, with their friends Lord Byron, John Polidori, and Claire Claremont, of course, would join them. Uh, she's currently pregnant with Byron's kid. Because she was in the same room with him for a brief period of time. No kidding, right? <laughs> and during this trip to Geneva, the weather was real bad, and so they would tell stories to each other at night. And someone came up with the idea of creating like the scariest ghost story between, mm -hmm. the, between the four of them. Mm-hmm. I guess five if you want to include Claire Claremont, but I don't think she actually wrote anything. Mm. Anyways, and this is how the idea of Frankenstein came into fruition. Yeah, we've talked about this incident uh, in earlier episodes because John Polidori wrote the vampire out of this, which ended up inspiring all of the tropes of vampire literature from his, <laughs> what Benito Serino calls his erotic friend fiction about Lord Byron. <laughs> it was a very productive vacation, you could say. Yeah. I never heard what Percy wrote out of that. I think it was a long poem. I don't remember off the top of my head. Okay. But that's 1816. Over the next two years is when Mary Shelley would be developing the idea, writing it, and it would eventually be published in 1818. Of course, there's plenty of tragedy throughout all of this. Um, at the time, she's actually pregnant 
1816 or mm-hmm. like would be within like the next few months because later that year her first son would be born her uh daughter would be born the following year and then three years later is when uh her fourth kid would be born and the reason i bring up all of this stuff about her kids is because only percy florence who was born in 1819 actually survives yeah and Frankenstein the novel is so filled with themes of reproduction and mm-hmm. failed parenthood. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why I keep bringing up that she had kids. Yeah. Uh, just to be clear, because my feminist part of my brain is going off like, you know, a woman's more than just the kid she pumps out. Yeah, but it, it ties into the death of these children and stuff, like you're saying, ties very strongly into the themes of the novel and what the novel's about. So Yeah. A little bit about where Mary Shelley and her family would kind of go from here is she finished Frankenstein in the summer of 1817. It was published January 1818. They decided to head to Italy for Percy Shelley's health, but also to avoid debtors and other legal troubles that were happening in England. Um, They were in Italy from 1818 to 1822. When they first arrived, Mary's daughter Clara died. Uh, as a baby. Then, like, the following year, her son William died. Uh, And then in 1822, um, she had a terrible miscarriage and almost died herself from that. Uh, And a few months after that, while they were on the coast of Italy, Percy Shelley and his friend Edward Williams were out boating. Um, A storm hit, and it killed both of them. Mm. So, just to emphasize again, a lot of tragedy in yeah. her life. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, like, the, what is that? So, like, by 1830, she's alive, and the one son is alive, and everyone else is dead? Pretty much, mm. yeah. Uh, so, after that, Mary Shelley moved back to England uh, to focus on raising her son, Percy Florence, and also focused on writing. Mm-hmm. She was very prolific, like I mentioned earlier. She would write everything from other novels to short stories, articles, travelogues, poems, like, everything. She passed away at age 53 in 1851 from what doctors had suspected as a brain tumor. She had had failing health and headaches leading up to this. And in her desk, after she passed away, they found locks of hair from her dead children and a copy of Percy Shelley's poem, Adonai, with a page folded around some of his ashes and the remains of his heart. So there's the goth girl. Yeah, to the end. Yeah. Exactly. (laughs) Though now she's most remembered for having written Frankenstein and being married to Percy Shelley, unfortunately. Um, Yeah, like she invented the um, post-apocalyptic genre in addition to like, because there's like regular sci-fi she invents when she writes Frankenstein, but like her other big sci-fi novel is like the first post-apocalyptic novel. Is that The Last Man? That is The Last Man, yeah. Yeah, that was published in 1826. Like, some of her other big works, uh, like, she wrote a lot, but some of her other big works were Matilda in 1819, which is a very autobiographical novel, and she wrote a novel titled Valperga in 1823, which is a historical novel, Mm -hmm. um, which is interesting because it focuses on the women behind the men in these historical events. Mm Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of autobiographical elements in her writings. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you can even just see that with Frankenstein, with me detailing these tragedies in her life. And her, uh, She had a very strange relationship with her dad for most of her life because her dad was upset that she ran off with one of his followers. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that same follower, Percy Shelley, 
had stopped trying to bail William Godwin out of debt around that time as well. So, yeah, kind of a strained relationship with him. And I'm sure just strained from, like, the death of her mother, too, right? I mean, you would hope William Godwin wouldn't put that blame on a kid, but, you know, people are human and People whatever. are trash, yeah. Yeah. I mean, Mary also had a pretty strained relationship with her stepmom. Yeah, and in all of her works, too, you can see her continuing her mom's focus on gender and feminism. And in in Mary Shelley's other works, a lot of the themes can relate to questioning gender or feminist critiques of established philosophies, uh, including her own father's, which is really interesting. Mm -hmm. So that kind of sums up Mary Shelley and her life and her other works, but I haven't really talked much about the novel Mm -hmm. itself. So let me do that. Yeah, absolutely. Frankenstein, like I said, it was first published in 1818, but it was published anonymously with only a preface by Percy Shelley. It was also dedicated to William Godwin, Mary's dad. So uh, a lot of people suspected Percy Shelley wrote it because, mm-hmm. you know, if he wrote the preface, clearly he wrote the rest of it, right? Right, sure. In addition to creating the genre of science fiction, it fits super neatly into the genre of gothic horror, mm-hmm. which, as has been previously established on this podcast, is one of my favorite things. Yeah. Because that makes it fit in the romantic movement. For people who aren't people who spent a ton of money to take English classes in university, <laughs> um, by romantic movement, I'm not saying, like, oh, like, love and romance. Uh, this is romance with a capital R. The whole idea of the romantic movement um, was to focus more on emotion, basically your emotional reaction to idealized nature, um, specifically focused on awe, terror, horror, um, and calling things sublime. Like it just overwhelms you with how incredible it is, whether it's terrifying because you're standing on the edge of a mountain with this thunderstorm coming towards you, mm-hmm. or you're stunned by its beauty because you're at Walden Pond or whatever. You know, mm-hmm. like, yeah, stunned by the awe of nature. Mm-hmm. Within the novel itself, it has these explicit themes of parenthood, specifically the failure of parenthood. Mm-hmm. The creature is often considered Frankenstein's Adam and his, like, failed Adam. Mm-hmm. It's also really interesting, uh, given her struggles with fertility, the idea of reproduction without women's involvement. Yeah, without without sex, like... Exactly, yeah. You can also talk a lot about the theme of children and their relationship to parents themselves. Mm-hmm. The novel itself is... I hesitate to call it epistolary, like Dracula, because yeah. like it, it's, it technically fits into that structure, but it's not really. Um, so epistolary as in, like, we mentioned it with Dracula, where it's a collection of like different diary entries, letters, newspaper clippings, etc. With Frankenstein, the novel opens with this sea captain who's on this expedition to the North Pole, writing letters to this woman who's back in England. Um, and he tells her in these letters how they saw this uh, dog sled with this giant man directing it. Mushing it. Mushing it. And how hours later they rescued a man who identified himself as Victor Frankenstein. And Victor Frankenstein, as recorded in these letters, goes on to tell his story. And then from there it's 
Victor Frankenstein telling the story mm-hmm. until it comes back at the end when it goes back into these letters between the sea captain. So it technically fits into epistolary, but I honestly would not really put it there. Yeah, it's sort of a standard like flashback framing device structure. Honestly, yeah. yeah. As far as a synopsis mm-hmm. of the novel, I kind of set up the beginning there already, and here's Victor Frankenstein's story. Uh, growing up, he was always interested in alchemical procedures focused on recreating natural phenomena. Uh, in university, because he's like first year undergrad <laughs> when he creates the creature, uh, in university he endeavors to test these theories of recreating nature and of reanimation, and uh, he begins to collect cadavers, yeah. basically, uh, mm-hmm. to create a huge humanoid. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's large because, you know, it's easier to work on something if it's big rather than if it's small. Right. That's the justification, basically. Mm-hmm. So when Victor creates the creature, the creature is hideous and almost looks like a walking corpse. And it's like eight feet tall, so it's very monstrous. Um, and Frankenstein is so distraught that he, like, runs out of the room and runs into his friend Henry Clerval and falls ill. Uh, they go back to Frankenstein's dorm room and the creature's gone. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's escaped. I should probably mention it's established that Frankenstein was born in Naples, Italy, uh, raised in Geneva, and he's studying in Germany. Mm-hmm. These are all places that Mary Shelley traveled to. Um, so after recovering for like four months from falling ill, uh, Victor Frankenstein heads back home to Geneva, and here's how his brother William was killed. Frankenstein sees a creature nearby, and he suspects him as the murderer, but he can't say anything because people would think he's crazy. Mm-hmm. Due to evidence, the police find William's nanny, Justine, guilty, and she is hanged as a result. Frankenstein goes hiking to kind of clear his head and try to alleviate this guilt, and the creature finds him. Then goes on to explain the creature's life up to this point, how he grew up in the wilderness away from people because people were always so scared of his appearance and found him so terrifying and would run him out of town. Um, He learned to speak from overhearing a nearby family in a cottage, and he taught himself to read by finding the satchel of books. Mm -hmm. Um, And probably most salient to mention is that the creature reads Paradise Lost by Milton. Um, Paradise Lost is like uh, the story of how Satan fell from heaven and like grew up to lead hell. Is that and, a and, good summary? And most significantly, then made the decision to corrupt Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Right. Better to rule in hell than serve, serve in, in heaven, heaven. Uh, is like a famous line from that. The creature, once he's gathered this knowledge, um, he sees the, his own reflection in, the, in some water and realizes just how terrifying he looks and really starts to identify with Satan in Paradise Lost, because he doesn't have someone to be like, hey, don't identify with Satan, that's bad. (laughs) And because the romantic movement did identify with Satan, like Lord Byron and the rest all thought Satan was rad in that book. Yeah, yeah. The family that lives in the cottage, they have a blind father. Um, and when, like, the rest of the family's out, um, the creature befriends the father and, you know, starts to actually have, like, hey, a friend. And then the family comes back and is 
completely like terrified at the creature, so they run away and the creature burns down the cottage in a rage. And at that point, he swears revenge on Frankenstein for having brought him into a world that hates him so much. Mm-hmm. As part of that revenge, the creature killed William, framed the nanny, and is now demanding that Frankenstein create a companion for him, uh, or he will destroy the rest of Frankenstein's life. Sure. The creature clearly rolled like a nat 20 on his uh, intimidation roll. <laughs> right. And Frankenstein... Uh, goes to create the companion. He leaves his fiancée, Elizabeth, with his dad and heads out to create this companion. But he starts to fear that the creature and his mate will create a plague, that they'll reproduce and overrun regular human civilization, I guess. Yeah. And so ultimately he chooses to destroy the corpse of the companion before reanimating it. The creature is very upset, threatens Frankenstein, and then leaves. And so Frankenstein's like, okay, maybe I'm okay. He just left. (laughs) When Frankenstein goes to leave, he discovers that his friend Henry Clerval has been murdered, and Frankenstein is framed for it. So he has to go deal with that and be like, no, 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 it's actually this creature that I reanimated. Long story. <laughs> uh, eventually, he heads back home to Geneva to marry Elizabeth. Um, and he's hoping that he's left everything behind him. But part of the threat that the creature left Frankenstein with was that I will be with you on your wedding night. Mm-hmm. So Frankenstein's kind of paranoid after marrying Elizabeth. And on their wedding night, he's like searching the house just to make sure that the creature is not there. As Frankenstein's doing that, the creature busts in and murders Elizabeth. Frankenstein's dad is distraught, obviously, and he actually dies from grief from all of the the deaths in the family. And with Frankenstein's, like, entire family ruined, all of this stuff, he vows revenge uh, to follow the creature to destroy him. Mm -hmm. Uh, He's following the creature to the North Pole, and then that's when uh, we catch up to the captain's side of the story. Right. Frankenstein warns the captain to avoid ambition. As the weather gets really bad in the North Pole, the captain sees this story as a warning and decides to turn back, and Frankenstein actually dies from exposure. The captain finds the creature on the ship grieving over Frankenstein's body, and uh, that's when the creature vows to the captain that he's going to kill himself uh, so others don't know of his existence, that Despite the death of his creator, he still feels guilt over all that's happened as a result of this vengeful revenging, and he uh, goes back onto the ice as the captain leaves on the boat. The end. Like I mentioned before the summary, the book was first published in 1818 anonymously. Reviews were very positive. Um, People really liked this novel. When rumors started to come out, that it was written by Mary Shelley, a woman, the reviews started turning, saying that the author's gender is the principal fault of the novel. (laughs) This was all good, except that a lady wrote it. Yeah, they started dismissing the book as a feeble imitation of her father's work. That's sexism for you. Exactly. What's kind of interesting is, so the book's published in 1818, 1823, there's a play adaptation Mm -hmm. called Presumption, Fate of Frankenstein. And this is done by Richard Brinsley Peake. The play is very successful. Mary Shelley actually saw the play with her dad 
uh, which is cool. And she she gave it a favorable review. She she enjoyed it. Okay. To capitalize on the success of the play, uh, Frankenstein was republished into two separate volumes in 1823, uh, and that's when the author credit was first given to Mary Shelley, but her dad, William Godwin, had written like a, a new preface and uh, had done the splitting into two volumes okay. thing. Kind of significant about this play is there's a bumbling servant named Fritz. Okay. Who helps with the creation of the monster. Okay. Also kind of significant is that the creation of the monster happens off stage, and the audience would only hear Frankenstein yelling, It lives! Mm. In the play, Frankenstein kills the creature with a pistol, but the sound of the pistol causes an avalanche which kills Frankenstein himself. So it just leaves Fritz and Clerval to be like, oh, whoa. Bit of a more action-packed ending. Yeah. Huh. In 1831, like we've kind of already mentioned, there was a revised version of Frankenstein published by Mary Shelley herself. And this had her own preface, and she had revised the story to be less radical. I'm not sure what making it less radical means. So what I had always read about the difference between the 1818 and 1831 versions is that the 1818 version, the focus is more or less very strongly on Frankenstein's failure as a parent, Mm. that Frankenstein's primary moral failing is that he abandons the creature, that after making the creature, he just rejects it and abandons it, and that by abandoning the creature, that's why the creature becomes violent and and all this kind of stuff. So the focus in the 1818 one is on the failure of parenthood. The 1831 version has been revised from what I've always been told to be more religious-focused, where Frankenstein's problem is that he made the creature in the first place because that was a sin against the the jurisdiction of God to create life. The emphasis is in a different place onto what Frankenstein's actual mistake was, abandoning the creature or making the creature in the first place. Okay. Yeah, so that's 1831 that she's revising it. So she's back in England, has a, uh, I don't remember when William Godwin dies, but she's kind of patched up her relationship with her dad. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's also experienced a whole lot more tragedy so perhaps that's why she was, like, focusing more on religious thematic changes rather than this relationship with parents. Mm-hmm. Other play adaptations that would happen, because this novel has been adapted many times, mm-hmm. is in 1826, we had H.M. Milner's play Frankenstein, or The Man and the Monster. Okay. And this was a bit of a, a Frankenstein adaptation combined with an adaptation of the French play Le Monstre et le Magicien, The Monster and the Magician. And having read the synopsis, it's probably more based on The Monster and the Magician with, like, Frankenstein characters. Okay. In 1887, which I, I, I can't believe this is a thing, there was a play called Frankenstein or The Vampire's Victim. <laughs> they really like that. Frankenstein, or Or alternative title. Sure. (laughs) And this was a musical burlesque? Like, that you'd go see at the Moulin Rouge or something? Something. It was a flop. Okay. It closed after a week. 
I feel like a, I feel like a revival might do good business. <laughs> uh, it featured a monster in touch with his feminine side, and it was criticized as being too feminist. <laughs> okay. So I really want to know what this play was. Yeah. But because I think because it was a flop, no one really kept much. I couldn't find much about it. Oh man! I, like yeah, I want I want to see a script. <laughs> The next adaptations we have are 1910's J. Searle Dolly's film, which we saw in episode one. Mm -hmm. In 1915, we have a adaptation called Life Without Soul by Joseph Smiley. Um, there's no surviving print of yeah. this film. In 1920, there is this Italian silent horror version titled The Monster of Frankenstein, directed by Eugenio Testa. This is also a lost film. Mm -hmm. I wish it wasn't. I would love to see this. <laughs> and then we go back to play adaptations with 1927's adaptation by Peggy Webling, which was at the request of Hamilton Dean, who we talked about with the Dracula episode. Yeah. It was produced in Lancashire and opened in London February 1930, had 72 performances, and was fairly successful. Um, I just want to point out that this is... Over a hundred years of the novel's first publishing, yet some of the criticism is the same in that there's a quote from the Times of London mm -hmm. that says, The play has unquestioningly brought the monster to life, but the play is as whimsy as a birdcage. What does that mean? I know, right? The criticism of the play echoed a lot of the criticism of the novel when it first was like rumored to have been written by a woman and it's just kind of like a sad not surprised just a little sad that like some of the same criticism of like this was good but a woman continued a hundred years later mm -hmm. and then the next adaptation is 1931's frankenstein yeah that we're watching today there's a lot of connections between this adaptation of frankenstein which was released in november of 1931 and Universal's adaptation of Dracula, which had come out in February of 1931. And so if you haven't heard episode 24, uh, where we covered uh, that adaptation of Dracula, you might want to check it out, because this is sort of part two of that story. <laughs> so Dracula had been a massive hit. It grossed just over a million dollars on a mere $355,000 budget, uh, so in response, Carl Lemley Jr., the head of Universal Studios, immediately moved Universal to begin producing follow-up horror films. Now, after Dracula, the next natural choice was Frankenstein. Uh, while the novel was in the public domain, Universal actually acquired the rights to adapt a stage play version because that strategy had already worked for them with Dracula. As you just recently mentioned, Hamilton Dean, who had successfully adapted Dracula to the stage in the UK, had playwright Peggy Webling adapt Frankenstein, uh, and it was explicitly to play alongside Dracula, like you'd go see them in a twofer show. Dracula had been on the stage for a while already in the UK. Peggy Webling's Frankenstein accompanied it from 1927 to 1930, with Dean playing the part of the monster. The play was not as critically well-received as Dracula, which you just sort of covered the dismissive nature of the critics, but it still performed very well financially. Seeing opportunity in this, John Balderston, who had adapted Dean's Dracula for Broadway, bought the rights to adapt Frankenstein for Broadway. Then, after writing 
this stage adaptation, he promptly sold it to Universal in April of 1931, two months after the hit film release of Dracula. Balderston never actually intended to mount his play version of Frankenstein. He had written it explicitly just to sell it to Universal. <laughs> Uh, immediately, Universal put this version of Frankenstein into production in April of 1931 with Bela Lugosi cast in the lead role. After all, he'd been key to the success of Dracula. The initial announcement had Lugosi playing Dr. Victor Frankenstein, with George Melford, the director of Spanish Dracula, set to direct the film, and a man named Robert Flory writing the screenplay. However, by May... Melford had been removed from the project, and Flory moved up to direct. And, at the command of Carl Emley Jr., Lugosi was now to play the monster, with Leslie Howard as the renamed Dr. Henry Frankenstein, while the Victor name went to the Clerval character, and Betty Davis as his fiancée Elizabeth. Well, at least that name's the same. <laughs> and it's worth saying that Betty Davis, at this point in her career, was strictly a nobody. Lugosi was outraged at being asked to portray an unspeaking, brutish monster. Uh, he believed that his charm and sex appeal had been the key to Dracula's success, and felt that the monster was a role not befitting his newfound star status. Nevertheless, work proceeded long enough for Lugosi to be shot by Robert Flory in some early makeup tests by Universal Studios makeup man Jack Pierce. Pierce had been shut out of the production of Dracula by Lugosi, who had insisted on doing his own makeup for that part. So the two were already on poor terms. Yeah. Pierce had been working in film since 1915, at first trying to make it as an actor, but his short stature hampered his career. However, his makeup skills were good enough to get him work on specialized jobs, such as Conrad Veidt's Rictus Grin in The Man Who Laughs, which so impressed Carl Lemley that he decided to bring Pierce on and give him a contract at Universal as the studio's makeup man. Do you know if Pierce ever worked alongside or underneath Lon Chaney in any kind of apprenticeship role? No. Um, in fact, Pierce was basically the guy that you called to do makeup in a movie that needed Lon Chaney-style makeup that Lon Chaney wasn't in, okay. like The Man Who Laughs. And in fact, the untimely death of Lon Chaney in 1930 opened up a ton of new opportunities for Pierce as an expert in horrific makeup. It basically made him the only name in town. Okay. The initial makeup tests for Frankenstein, with Lugosi as the monster, were a disaster. Pierce went with a design that was heavily influenced by Paul Wigner's appearance in The Golem. Ooh. Yeah, with a long, shaggy wig and a kind of flat, clay-like face. Oh, buddy, no. I mean, like, having read about some of these play adaptations, like the creature is taken as like a hobgoblin or clay-ish, like... Thing. So I can see why he went that route, mm -hmm. but no. <laughs> yeah, see, director Robert Flory was a big fan of German Expressionism, and studio boss Lemley was too, so I can see why pulling from the golem made sense. Mm. Lugosi hated the makeup. He found the entire experience of doing the makeup and doing these test shoots to be utterly humiliating. Uh, he ranted and raved during the shoot 
that he was a star in his country and would not be reduced to a scarecrow in this one. Um, <laughs> That's he, good. That was a good good thing. Thank you. Um, he he was, you know, uh, against the fact that all the monster did was, like, grunt and groan and didn't have any lines. When Carl Lemley saw the test footage, he reportedly laughed out loud. And soon after, both Flory and Lugosi found themselves removed from the project. Although Lugosi maintained that he wasn't fired, he quit. At the end of the day, does it really matter? Um, well, in terms of the future arc of Bella Lugosi's career, it would. Oh, right. I forgot how depressing it got. Robert Flory's removal from the film wasn't due to a lack of enthusiasm for the job, but really what spelled the end of his involvement was the emergence of a director who was much more in favor on the Universal Studios lot, Englishman James Whale. Born in 1889, Whale first developed a taste for theater in the most unlikely of places as a prisoner of war in World War I, where Whale took part in amateur theatrical productions undertaken in the camp. Okay. Uh, As an officer during the First World War, uh, the type of prisoner of war camp that he was being held at, like, officer prisoner of war camps treated you better than, like, enlisted man prisoner of war camps. Also, like, World War I prisoner of war camps aren't the same thing as, like, World War II, like, concentration camps. Yeah, I guess. Um, so these were, like, amateur theatrical productions put on by the prisoners to, like, pass the time and try to keep morale up, (laughs) um, as they waited out the end of the war, uh, and this is where he kind of first, uh, got into theatrics. After the war, Whale continued to pursue a career in theater, working through the 1920s. In 1928, he was offered the job directing a play called Journey's End, which was about British infantrymen in World War I, a subject Whale was eminently suited for. The two leads for the play were played by then-unknown actors Laurence Olivier and Maurice Evans, making both of them famous. By 1929, the play was now showing in London's West End, with a young actor named Colin Clive having taken over for Olivier's role. The play ran for three years overall, gaining a reputation as the greatest play about World War I yet done. Whale uh, became highly in demand, with the rise of sound film leading Hollywood studios to seek out acclaimed theater directors and actors to come work on film. Whale found himself hired in 1930 for his first film job by producer and aviator Howard Hughes to direct (laughs) new sound dialogue scenes for his war epic Hell's Angels, which had started shooting in 1927 as a silent film. Right. That's a good movie. It is. Like, we won't be watching it on this this podcast. it's a good movie. But listeners, it's a good movie. Go see it. Yeah, Howard Hughes produced it. Uh, He directed all of the aerial combat scenes, and then the, like, dialogue drama scenes. I forget who directed them when they were silent, but then when they all had to be reshot for sound, it was James Whale. Whale then embarked on adapting his hit play Journey's End to the screen, with Colin Clive reprising his stage role, and David Manners making his screen debut in the Morris Evans part. The film version was another smash hit. Whale was an openly gay man, and by 1931, he was living with his longtime partner, film producer David Lewis. 
uh, Colin Clive was also gay, as was David Manners uh, when we talked about him in our Dracula episode, we mentioned that. Uh, but Clive was married in 1929 to comedian Jean DeCasselis, but they were estranged. And she was rumored to be a lesbian, so the general like take on this marriage is that it was a marriage of convenience between the two of them. After the success of Journey's End, Whale was hired by Universal Studios to direct Waterloo Bridge, another World War I film, uh, this time starring an actress named Mae Clark. Waterloo Bridge was another huge hit, uh, so Carl Emley Jr. offered Whale the choice of any property Universal was developing that interested him. <laughs> Whale chose Frankenstein because it wasn't a war picture. <laughs> With Robert Flory out and James Whale in, he began reimagining the film to suit his tastes, including axing Leslie Howard and Betty Davis in favor of Colin Clive as Henry Frankenstein and Mae Clark as Elizabeth. The role of the monster, however, was still empty. That is, until James Whale was having lunch in the studio commissary one day and caught sight of a middle-aged bit player with a gaunt, ungainly bone structure. <laughs> William Henry Pratt was born in England in 1887 to a family of distinguished British diplomats. But despite his high-achieving relatives, William dropped out of university in 1909 and became a drifter, uh, eventually leaving for Canada and taking various odd manual labor jobs until landing on actor as like a suitably itinerant job description. <laughs> From 1911 onwards, he used the stage name Boris Karloff, ostensibly because it sounded foreign and exotic. The reason for the change was to avoid embarrassment for his family, as he felt like he was sort of the black sheep of the bunch. Mm -hmm. Karloff toured small-town Canada, performing theatrically in Kamloops, Prince Albert, and notably in Regina, where Karloff volunteered with relief efforts following the 1912 tornado. That's really cool. I didn't know that. <laughs> Karloff supplemented his acting income with manual labor jobs, uh, which eventually would lead to uh, back and joint problems that would haunt him the rest of his life. And in fact, he was disqualified from service in World War I due to his poor health. Karloff then arrived in California in 1918 and began acting in film, almost entirely in bit parts in low-budget serials, often as a heavy or exotic-type villain. In 1931, Karloff began to appear in larger supporting roles in critically acclaimed films such as The Criminal Code, uh, The Five Star Final, as well as a small role as a rival mob boss in Scarface which, due to censor troubles, wouldn't actually see release until 1932. That's another good movie. People should see that Scarface. Yes, it is. Uh, I much prefer it, actually, to the 80s Al Pacino version. It's really good. So, at this time, Karloff more or less considered his career to be a failure. Um, he was kind of looking to maybe get out of the business. When James Whale decided that he would be perfect for the monster, at this point Karloff was 44 years old. Whale, Karloff, and Jack Pierce collaborated to create the look of the monster, from his flat skull to his electrode-bolted neck, uh, the green skin tone, which was meant to look like someone who was deathly pale on black-and-white film, and Karloff actually also removed his dental plate in order to give the creature sunken-in cheeks. Whoa, cool. 
With all the elements now in place, the truly unique production kicked it into high gear with cinematography by Arthur Edison, who had shot Waterloo Bridge for Whale earlier, and also shot Roland West's The Bat, so we've seen his work on the list already. Uh, the film also had imaginative set design by Kenneth Strickfaden, who contributed the Tesla coils and other electrical equipment to Frankenstein's lab, uh, setting up the <laughs> stereotype of like random electrical gear in a mad scientist's lab uh, to such a degree that old school horror fans refer to those gizmos as Strickfadens. Yeah, because in The Magician with Paul Wegner, mm -hmm. there was no electrode stuff. Like, it no. had alchemical yeah, it was, chemistry sets, but that's it. Yeah, it was the old Beakers and Bunsen burners look. The screenplay for James Whale's version of the film was done by Garrett Fort, who had written the screenplay for Dracula. Whale himself also added a few things here and there, uh, including expanding on some of Henry Frankenstein's monologues uh, that further explained his character's motivation, and generally making the character of Henry Frankenstein much more sympathetic. Once filming was completed, there were of course the expected battles with the studio and the censors over the editing of the film, which contained elements that were perceived as blasphemous. Also under debate was the ending of the film. Early preview audiences got to see the original ending in which Frankenstein dies with his creation, but Universal decided to have Whale shoot an epilogue revealing that the Doctor had lived, possibly anticipating a sequel, but more likely wishing to end the story with a lighter tone. Hmm. As with Dracula, Edward Van Sloan filmed a speech to warn away criticisms, but this time it was placed at the start of the film, almost as like a dare to keep watching. Frankenstein opened in late 1931 to stellar reviews, with most critics declaring it to have surpassed Dracula as the new peak of the horror genre. Dracula, as I had said earlier, grossed a million dollars on a $355,000 budget. Frankenstein cost only $262,000 to make, and ended up grossing $12 million. Whoa. While Dracula's success had signaled to Universal Studios that the time had come to make horror films, Frankenstein's success signaled it to the other major studios as well, who now began prepping their own horror films after seeing that the success of Dracula hadn't just been a fluke. That's crazy. Mm -hmm. That's And that's like $1931 yes. too, right? Like, yeah. whoa. How are we watching it? Because, like, so, how can other people watch this? Yeah, so we're watching it on the... Frankenstein Legacy Collection uh, DVD release from 2004, uh, which is the same way we watched Dracula. Uh, Frankenstein has been issued on DVD and Blu-ray multiple times, uh, both in the Legacy Collection, which collects it alongside all of Universal's other Frankenstein films, but also on its own. Uh, and so you can find it either solo or in the set on DVD and Blu-ray pretty easily. Uh, for streaming releases... It's available uh, for rent on iTunes, the PlayStation Video Store, or the Microsoft Video Store. Cool. There's nothing left to do but dive in and watch the movie. Yeah, I'm so excited. All right, cool. I love this movie. Uh, yeah, people will hear a brief musical interlude, and then we will be right back to discuss Frankenstein. See you on the other side.
Welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching the 1931 James Whale film Frankenstein, starring Colin Clive and Boris Karloff. And I love this film. <laughs> but it's always like, especially after watching Dracula, it's like, this is good, but... Uh, do, you, do you prefer Dracula to this? I think I, I do, but like I still love this film. It's going to be interesting discussing it and, and getting, when we get to rankings, I think traditionally this is seen as like far superior to Dracula. Like most people are just like, no, like clearly this is better. Yeah, I have thoughts as to why that is. I think in terms of like how tightly constructed Dracula is versus this, where I feel like for one reason or another, it's not as clear cut. Hmm. We always seem to use the word tight to, mm. to talk about films, and I'm trying to find a better word for it, but yeah, we, we'll, be, we'll, we'll, we'll get there with ranking. We'll, we'll get there. I think we have an interesting discussion ahead of us, Sarah. Woo! That's great. Uh, do you want me to do a plot summary? Yes, please. Okay. Our story opens in a graveyard where Henry Frankenstein and his hunchbacked assistant, Fritz, are stealing cadavers out of graves and from hangman's noose sites and all kinds of places so that they can get the parts that they need to build the body that Henry Frankenstein is building for his experiments into the nature of, of life and death. Meanwhile, Henry's fiance Elizabeth is super worried about the fact that Henry's like locked himself away in this old watchtower that he's using for a laboratory and she hasn't seen him and she's super worried about it and she's being visited by Victor Moritz, who's Henry's friend, who is also super worried. They decide to go see Henry's professor at college, Dr. Waldman, who teaches at the Goldstadt Medical College. Uh, and try and just, like, see if Waldman can convince Henry to knock off the weird experiments. Uh, Waldman is played by Edward Van Sloan, who you may remember as Van Helsing in Dracula. In my notes, I couldn't remember his actual name, so I just wrote Dr. Van Helsing. <laughs> when I was a kid, I just thought that every character Edward Van Sloan ever played in these old movies was Van Helsing, so... Yeah. So they go and visit Waldman, who explains that Frankenstein's brilliant, but basically crazy, because he wants to bring a lifeless human body constructed out of corpses and cadavers to life through scientific means, uh, which is, you know, crazy <laughs> on the face of it. Well, it's certainly not sane. Yeah. Meanwhile, the one piece of the puzzle that Frankenstein and Fritz are missing is the brain. So he sends Fritz out to the Goldstadt Medical College to steal a brain. And Fritz takes a normal brain at first and then gets frightened by, like, a gong or something <laughs> and drops it and then grabs another brain in a jar, uh, which is labeled Abnormal Brain, because this film subscribes to the bunk eugenicist pseudoscience nonsense that, like, a there's... A criminal's brain must be abnormal. Yeah, that, like, there's an actual physical difference in a criminal's brain. So Fritz takes that brain to Frankenstein, and they're all ready to commence the experiment, which involves basically putting this constructed body on a gurney, hoisting it up into the sky 
and letting some lightning shoot it until it comes to life. Frankenstein goes on this rant to his professor about how he's discovered a, a kind of light that's beyond ultraviolet light. Yes. And that's what the body's being exposed to. Yeah, it's the, the ray that first brought life to existence. Which are clearly the Vita rays used to create <laughs> Captain America. There's something weird about how Shelley's novel is... Shelley's novel's pretty pretentious, right? Like, it's called <laughs> Frankenstein or the Modern Prometheus. This movie is much more pulpy, right? Like, yeah. like, this, like Frankenstein's lab and, like, the stuff that he's doing and the pseudoscience used to explain what's going on really feels like something, like, out of a, a pulp magazine. Just as they're about ready to do the experiment, uh, Waldman, Victor, and Elizabeth show up at the watchtower. And at first, Henry wants to shoo them away, but then he decides that he needs an audience, basically. Because Victor calls him crazy. Yes. He's like, crazy am I? Yeah. I'll show you crazy. Yeah, it, it sets him off a little bit. Yeah. Uh, so he gets to give a bunch of big speeches explaining his motivations. Uh, they zap the creature with lightning. And of course, it's alive. Now I know what it feels like to be God. <laughs> So, you know, things are going well. Henry, oh, it's so confusing that they switched Henry and Victor's That's names. That's why I keep calling him Frankenstein. Yeah. Henry uh, enlists the aid of Dr. Waldman in, like, the next stage of this experiment, which is, you know, raising this human that they've made, I guess. And that's taking up a lot of his time. So the clock's ticking down to when him and Elizabeth are supposed to get married. And the thing is that, like, Henry's dad is the Baron Frankenstein, and thus, like, the feudal lord for, like, this village in Germany, and, like, the whole village is, like, prepped to celebrate this wedding, and, like, they're having to put it off, and it's, like, a big hullabaloo. So Baron Frankenstein decides that, like, he's not gonna wait for his son to be done with his shit, so he <laughs> gathers up Victor and Elizabeth, and they head off again to the tower to convince Henry to, like, leave and come get married. Meanwhile, Waldman is convinced that the monster is going to be, like, violent and murderous because Waldman knows that it was a criminal brain that was stolen from the university. And Henry's like, nah, it's gonna be fine. Like, don't worry about it. We're just gonna, like, we'll raise the creature right and everything will be fine. Like, no big deal. He does have a moment of concern when yeah, he... Van Helsing shares that it's, <laughs> it's an abnormal brain. But he's like, it's just tissue. Yeah, he shrugs it off. It'll which be is, fine. Which is good. That actually means that Frankenstein's a more reasonable scientist than Waldman. <laughs> um, the problem is that, like, the monster, who we then see for the first time in his full Boris Karloff, you know, platform shoes, black suit, flathead regalia, is being essentially, like, daily tortured by Fritz. Like, Fritz gets his rocks off to, like, torturing the monster with, like, torches and whips and shit. So, Waldman's predictions that the monster is going to be violent come true, but only really because, like, Fritz abuses him. Yeah. Like, Fritz abuses him, so the monster, in response, murders Fritz. 
and Waldman convinces Frankenstein the only reasonable thing to do now is to essentially put the monster down uh, like he would a savage animal. Um, and that's when Baron Frankenstein and the others arrive and take Henry away from the tower and back to Castle Frankenstein uh, to start prepping for the wedding. And the professor is like, go, I'll take care of this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so Waldman pumps the monster full of sedatives and then is going to basically, I think, dissect him? Like, he's got a bunch of, like, surgical tools and he's going to dissect them, which is is weird that he's prepping to do this while the monster is just, like... Alive? Yeah, like, just sedated. Like, give him the lethal injection first, maybe? I don't know. Anyways, uh, the monster wakes up in time to see what's going on and murders Waldman and escapes. Meanwhile, uh, back in the village, like, they're all ready to prep for the wedding, and there's all kinds of celebratory stuff going on. The whole village is turned out in their lederhosen and folk garb and, like, singing and dancing to, like, accordion music. The monster's kind of wandering around the countryside. The monster comes across this cottage that's, like, on a lake where this villager lives, and he's off to the village for... Well, he's off to check traps, and then when he comes back, he and his daughter Maria will head to the village for celebrations. Right, right. So when the monster gets there, Maria, the daughter, is all by herself. And she wants someone to play with, and the monster's kind of into that idea as well. And uh, so they're playing by the lake and, like, tossing flowers into the lake to make them float. And then the monster runs out of flowers, and he still wants to toss something into the lake to make it float. So he picks up Maria and tosses her into the lake. And she drowns in, like, a foot of water. That is possible, to drown in a foot of water? Sure, sure, yeah, it's just... But it's, like, she's, like, super close to shore. It's very... Yeah, right? it's, it's, it's always struck me as a little weird, this yeah. moment. Anyways, the monster then makes his way to Castle Frankenstein, and Elizabeth is having some pretty unique pre-wedding jitters, where she says to Henry that, like, She's worried about Dr. Waldman, like, shouldn't he be here already? And, like, she's just convinced that something awful's gonna happen, and she's super scared. For no other reason other than, like, she's read the script, I guess, and knows what's gonna happen (laughs) soon. Because she's being so hysterical, Henry decides the best thing to do is to, like, straight up just lock her in her room. Uh, Which definitely turns against him when the monster breaks into her room through the windows and attacks her. By the time they're able to get back into her room, uh, she's kind of collapsed and the monster's already left. He never really did much of anything to her other than menace her. That's when this guy who lived in the cottage shows up with his drowned daughter in the village. And so the village knows that there's like a murderer about and Frankenstein knows that the monster's on the loose. So everybody teams up to form a big torch-wielding angry mob presumably Frankenstein didn't tell the mob, like, where this (laughs) eight-foot-tall gaunt murderer just came from. Yeah. uh, And why he knows so much about it. But uh, they go and search for the monster in the mountains, which look like every planet they ever beamed down to on the original Star Trek. Um, (laughs) Just because it's a bad set. Yeah. The monster finds Frankenstein first, and absconds with him to an old windmill, uh, trapped in the windmill, surrounded by the angry torch-wielding mob. The monster lobs Frankenstein off the top of the windmill, and he's, like, caught on one of the blades, and then, like, falls to the ground. Like, he's super dead. Yeah, if Um, he wasn't dead when he hit the windmill blade, he was definitely dead when he hit the ground. Yeah, for sure. Uh, And the villagers gather around, and they're like, no, he's fine. Take him back to his house. 
To be fair, they... I don't know why I'm nitpicking this. <laughs> but they're like, Frankenstein. Oh, Henry Frankenstein. We'll take him back home. Like, they don't say he's fine. Sure, sure. And then uh, they set fire to the windmill, and it goes up in a big blaze. And then we fade to black. And then we fade in on Castle Frankenstein, where Henry is recovering with Elizabeth. And the Baron gets, like, a little joke about some wine that was introduced earlier in the movie in a joke bit. And, uh, yeah, that's the movie. I really like the novel. Mm-hmm. And I really like most of this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and you made a comment during the movie where, like, w- talking about this this movie or something made you really want to watch the Kenneth Branagh. It was when version. you were. It's, it was when you were giving your plot summary of the novel made me really want to watch the Kenneth Branagh version. And like that version's great, but like I wish I could have like Robert De Niro in this. Okay. Like, because I love the creature in the Kenneth Branagh, and, like, Karloff is great in this, too, but I really just want, like, you just Colin, want Colin Clive, Clive. And, <laughs> and Robert De Niro. Like, they both do such good performances. How do you feel about this movie? I have a lot of opinions about this movie. Personally, I've always been a Dracula person. Like, the traditional wisdom is that this is better. I've always been a Dracula man, though. Um, but I know you're sort of more the Frankenstein partisan. And I think, like, what I love about, like, this is from the novel, but, like, I think it's in the movie, too, where what I love about Frankenstein and Frankenstein's creature is that, like, the creature's so sympathetic. Yes. People point to this movie as, like, the archetypal monster movie. Mm-hmm. Yet, and it has, like, the the mob with torches and everything. Yeah. And yet the creature is sympathetic. Yes. Versus a monster movie... I was thinking, like, because the director just recently passed away, I was thinking of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Sure. Where, like, the, just to call them monsters, like, those guys aren't sympathetic. Like, they're just there to terrorize you. Whereas here, it's not just cut and dry, simple like that. So, Dracula ends in a tomb, and Frankenstein begins in a cemetery. And I feel like it's almost as if to say, like, we're gonna start with how macabre Dracula was, and then we're gonna ramp up from there. Like, we don't have to build up to cemeteries anymore. And I feel like it's worth saying about this movie that from our position in 2017, it's maybe, like, hard to understand, like, how disturbing or taboo or weird it would be to have a movie whose hero, like, is stealing corpses from graves in cemeteries and, like, desecrating hallowed ground and, like, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. I know you'll have a lot to say about him, but, like... Colin Clive is definitely, like, the MVP of this film. Like, his manic, depressive performance really brings Henry Frankenstein to three-dimensional life while everyone else in the movie is kind of more or less stock archetypes. Um, I think this was the first film I ever saw Colin Clive in. Mm -hmm. And it's just so amazing to me how he can go from being, like, polite with sure. Elizabeth when she shows up to the castle. Right. Or the, the watchtower for the first time. Yeah. My dear, don't you see? Like, you can't you can't be here. And then Victor being like, see, he's crazy. And he's like, I'll show you crazy. Like, you yeah. want to see crazy? Come see this. And like, yeah, you said it perfectly with like the manic nature mm-hmm. of it. I think what's also interesting, and like this kind of ties back to what I was saying about the creature being sympathetic, is that like most of the characters in this have an opportunity to be the source of the horror. Mm. Not everyone is continually sympathetic. Mm. 
I think that's very interesting. Like, Fritz, for example, is horrific when he's torturing the creature. Like, he's right. just, like, being, like, one of those, like, mean kids with, like, a magnifying glass on <laughs> ants, right? Sure. But in the beginning, he's a little sympathetic because Frankenstein kind of bullies him. He's a little scared about the work that they're doing. Right. Like, he's like, no, I don't want to, like, go up and cut down this corpse. Like, he's... So he's sympathetic in the beginning and then later becomes a little horrific. Even the doctor, the professor... Waldman, yeah. Waldman. He is sympathetic in that, like, you've seen this student who you've been mentoring who had such a bright future just kind of, like, go off the deep end. Mm -hmm. And yet he is so... um alienated almost from humanity and the way he's like put this thing down like a savage right animal and even when he's talking to elizabeth about like frankenstein was experimenting with human corpses like he he's so like uh scientific about it it's almost like he doesn't have compassion mm -hmm. for things and then even when he's going to dissect the creature like it's so like distant from any kind of empathy yeah I think one thing that this film does really well is portray kind of like the cycle of abuse. Yeah. Uh, like, Henry, I think, even though we don't directly see it, it's pretty easy to understand that Henry's belittled by his father. Because all the scenes we see with Baron Frankenstein where he talks about his son, it's like, oh, why does he need to work? Like, why can't he just sit around and be a lazy aristocrat like me? And then, in turn, as you mentioned, Henry belittles Fritz who then in turn tortures the monster, who then goes out and murders people, right? So it shows you that escalation of, like, the cycle of abuse, right? Definitely. It's interesting that, like, Frankenstein wants to break out of that cycle when he is showing a bit of guilt about leaving the creature behind when mm -hmm. his dad's talking about to the son of Frankenstein, to, like, mm -hmm. the next Frankenstein or whatever. And how, like, he was so enthusiastic about teaching the creature mm -hmm. up until it seemed like he had failed with Fritz being killed. Yeah, I mean, like, the plot of the movie is pretty different from the plot of the novel. Like, yeah. the novel's almost more of, like, a jumping-off point than a source of adaptation. But I think we've really hit the nail on the head of, like, what the biggest single change is, which is that, like, the film invests itself in making Frankenstein sympathetic. I don't know if it succeeds with making Frankenstein sympathetic. I think, though, that that's like a goal of it in a way that the novel, that was never a goal. You know, in the movie, like, the people who object to him and his work really are a bunch of fools, like Victor and his father and Waldman. This Frankenstein doesn't abandon his creation, which is like the primary sin in the novel. This Frankenstein is dragged away from his creation by people who don't understand. Mm. And the creature becomes violent and dangerous, not from neglect, but from abuse, as we've said, by Fritz and later by Waldman. And I think, like, ultimately, the film tries to absolve Henry Frankenstein as much as it can. I mean, that's why the criminal brain plot point is there, which mm -hmm. originates in this film and ultimately serves to render both Frankenstein and the monster relatively free of responsibility for the violence that occurs. Like, it's not the monster's fault he was abused and he has a defective brain, and it's not Henry's fault he was misunderstood by these people around him who thought they knew what was best for him. At the same time, I think, like, I think you're totally right. 
in the beginning of the film, though, we're supposed to find Frankenstein horrific himself. Like, he's the source of fear because of his obsession. Mm, sure. Um, and then I think you make a really good point of how the film tries to, like, flip that on its head. I think that the film gives Colin Clive such good speeches about, you know, like the speech that he gives Waldman about, like, haven't you ever tried to do something that was dangerous? Haven't you ever, you know, wanted to answer the questions of life and what is eternity and stuff like that? I feel like James Whale sympathizes with Henry Frankenstein in mm -hmm. some way, and that Colin Clive's performance makes Henry Frankenstein like a tragic character for sure. Definitely one who has some screws loose. But ultimately, like, one who is sympathetic and three-dimensional. I would totally agree. Before this, before you were pointing out some of these things, um, I was feeling like Frankenstein surviving at the end undercut the horror. Mm -hmm. Now, I see it as, like, like not undercutting the horror. I, I'm still not sure if it adds to the horror, but it makes Frankenstein more of the survivor of abuse rather than surviving the entire experience. Yeah, like the monster doesn't get his revenge on his creator, but instead, like, Frankenstein and the monster, I think they're really victims, both of them, totally. in this film. Like, and, and you sort of brought this up briefly earlier, but like, definitely the sympathy shown to the monster is a major effort on the part of the film. I think it's, for me personally, like, arguably a mistake that the creature never gets to speak mm -hmm. in this version, but Karloff's performance and Whale's direction renders the character with, like, enough of a heart and a soul that you really feel for him. It makes it, like, kind of impossible to watch this movie and not immediately understand that he's, like, a child and that he's acting out of mostly, like, fear and misunderstanding. I think that's why I like the Robert De Niro creature in Kenneth Branagh, because he has the ability to speak. He has the the line of, like, he never gave me a name. Yeah. Things like that. Because, like, Karloff does an amazing job here. Mm-hmm. Definitely. You know, like, all of the creature's violence results from self-defense, uh, except for the murder of Maria. Which I feel like comes from ignorance. Yeah, absolutely. Like, that scene goes to such an effort to show the creature and the girl both as innocence mm -hmm. and emphasizes that what happens like isn't based in malevolence, right? It's just tragic. I was thinking about the way that this film, I, I don't know if this is the director or the cinematographer's job, but blocking. Mm. This... That's That would be the director. Okay. Yeah, this film goes to such great lengths when it comes to blocking for like having that feeling of the creature and Maria both being innocents. Like, they both go down to their knees by the river, mm -hmm. and, like, and like the camera kind of follows them. And I'm also thinking of, like, the way that, you know, when Frankenstein says the line, now I know what it feels like to be God, mm -hmm. he's, like, center. He's mm -hmm. blocked in the center, and then we have the professor and his friend Victor kind of coming in from the sides to kind of, like, pull him down or something yeah, like yeah. that. Like, I don't know, just something about the way that this film was blocked just kept saying something to me, but I'm not quite sure what yet. The thing that I noticed about it visually, in terms of its visual motifs, was there were two things I noticed. One was, and, and they come together, there's a scene where they come together, but one visual motif was a repeated emphasis on height. Yeah. Um, that, you know, Frankenstein's based in this tower that you have to, like, move up to get to. The creature has to move up 
to get hit by the lightning. Uh, the climax happens in this windmill where everything's on high, right? So there's this sense of constantly moving up and then getting like pulled back down, which is, I think, the thing you're seeing in that scene where they're restraining him. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a pretty obvious like visual metaphor to be drawn from like moving up but getting pulled back down, um, you know, about hubris and stuff. The other thing that I noticed this film does is it has a major emphasis on hands. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Henry has like a speech about like how he made the creature with his own two hands. And he, he makes this gesture. And then the first thing that we see move on the creature is the hand. And then... The creature reaching out with his hands for more sunlight. Yeah. Or reaching up to reaching the sunlight. Reaching up to the sunlight. That's the scene where those two things come together, right? Where he reaches up to the sunlight before, with his hands. Before he throws Maria into the lake, he touches her hand. Yeah, he also like reaches out with his hands when they're empty uh, of flowers. Like, oh, where's more flowers? He, All of his murders are done with his hands, right? He picks up Maria and throws her into the lake, or he strangles Waldman. Um, like, the movie has this visual emphasis on hands. And it's a movie about creating something, right? And I think it's a movie about, you know, playing God, too. So those elements make a lot of sense to me. That's really cool to think about. Just kind of a, a last note with Karloff's acting. I think um, he really does what he can with the vocal performance that he does give. Mm-hmm, like his grunts and moans and stuff. Yeah, and I think, like... You can see it throughout his entire performance, but the part that I want to kind of highlight is when he's in the windmill and it's being um, brought down by the fire and everything. Yeah, and he's just terrified. Yeah, he sounds like a terrified child Mm -hmm. um, because it's very high-pitched rather than the low-grown, kind (laughs) of like in the beginning, right? Yeah. And I think that really embodies that feeling of like he's just a, a, a kid. Absolutely. Yeah, and so I think... I think what Karloff does with his voice is really powerful. Yeah, I mean, he deserves every bit of praise that he gets for this film. I mean, this movie single-handedly catapulted him into being a star, right? You know, I didn't mention it before we started, but maybe it's a good time to mention it now. Like, he's credited with just a question mark in the opening credits, which is, like, clearly, like, a bit of a PR move, but also shows that, like, you know, he was a nobody, right, that they could do that. And then he's finally actually named only in the end credits. And I think it's a testament to how multifaceted he is with no dialogue that everyone who saw this film in 1931 remembered that name at the very end of the movie and made Boris Karloff synonymous with horror movies for decades to come. Definitely. As for the rest of the cast, like outside of Colin Clive and Boris Karloff, we've got... Edward Van Sloan back again as Waldman, and he's kind of just doing the same thing. It's not as good of a part because Waldman doesn't get to be, like, a major force in the story the way that Van Helsing is in Dracula, but it's it's basically the same archetype. Dwight Fry, of course, is back. He's Fritz. Mm-hmm. I think he's he's great as Fritz. Like, he makes that character so instantly memorable and iconic that, like, you forget how early in the story he's kind of done away with. Yeah. That, you know, the hunchbacked assistant character has become, like, so huge in, like, the cultural memory of this story. Yeah, like, he does, like, these little things that make the character stand out in a 
our minds. Like, after he's gone down to tell the people to leave, and he's about to go back up the stairs, he, like, stops to pull up his sock or something. Right, yeah, yeah. Like, there's little things like that that I think um, he does to add to the character, which, like, I feel like if you had a lesser actor or someone who was just like, oh, I just need to hunch over and, like, follow orders, okay, mm -hmm. um, they wouldn't think to add these different dimensions. So he does what he can. Yeah, like, it's... It's not as good a role as Renfield. Definitely. Right? Like, Fritz is pretty one-note. So I think you've you've certainly said it best that, like, if you had anyone not as good as Dwight Fry, you wouldn't remember Fritz. Mm -hmm. But because it's Fry, you remember this character who's otherwise kind of nothing. Yeah. May Clark's all right as Elizabeth. Yeah. She's just kind of there. And I mean, like, again, that again, that's kind of like the part she was given. Oh, for sure, for sure. I do like that. Uh, I don't know how old the actress is. But she seems a little older. Mm. Maybe it's because we just saw Spanish Dracula with Ava being so young. Sure. So coming back to an actress who looks at least middle-aged. I don't know. It was kind of nice. That added something to the character more so than if it had been someone who was younger. She doesn't get a lot to do, but she is like pretty reasonably forceful. Like... Victor tries to say, like, oh, I'm going to go see Frankenstein by myself. You stay here. And she's like, no, I'm coming with you. Um, so she gets, like, enough to do, but it is a pretty, like, one-note part. Speaking of Victor, <laughs> what the hell is John Bowles even doing in this movie? Right. Like, the character of Victor is completely useless to the story. He does, he does nothing. He's not even one of the monster's victims. <laughs> like, he's just kind of there. The only thing that he really adds is, like, when Elizabeth asks him to, like, come in and is like, hey, can you look after Henry? Like, I'm worried about him. Like, there's clearly something between them yeah. that she's like dude, I'm marrying your friend. Yeah. He's like, but I'm a nice guy. <laughs> like, it's like, why do you have this second romantic lead when that doesn't even really go anywhere, though? Like, they don't explore that love triangle. Like, the only thing I can think of is that Universal clearly wanted to, like, stick to the Dracula formula, right? We've got Dwight Fry, we've got Edward Van Sloan, and maybe they were just afraid that, like, David Manor's, like, dull blankness as Jonathan Harker was perhaps, like, an essential element somehow to Dracula's success. So they were like, okay, we need to have, like, a big dull bag of nothing in a suit in this movie. Like, <laughs> if we don't have it, like, maybe that's the thing that made Dracula a success. We don't know. I feel like he's a holdover from previous drafts of the script or something. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Where, like, maybe he had something to do. Yeah, and, like, the only thing that he does serve, besides this, like, weird romantic tension... Mm -hmm. is at the end, before the big action climax, when Frankenstein's, like, not sure if he's coming back, he tells Victor, uh, it, this is very confusing, he yeah. tells his friend yeah. that, like, I leave her in your care regardless of what happens. Right. So it's like, okay, oh, because, like, he was supposed to die, die. right? So, so it's was... like, she'll be taken care right. of. Right, the audience knows, okay, yeah, Oh, yeah, of course, that makes all the sense in the world. In the version of the movie where Henry dies, Victor and Elizabeth get to have the happy ending. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, it is super confusing because not only in the novel, right, it's Victor Frankenstein and Henry Clerval, and then they're switched here. Yeah. But his name isn't Victor Clerval either. It's Victor Moritz, 
Where does the name Moritz come from? That's Justine, the nanny's last name in the novel. Right. What, why did they do like, that? It's so fucking weird. Did they, like, were they just, like, plural? That's a dumb name. <laughs> Change it to Moritz? I feel like, like, the like, I've never known why those two names got switched. Like, I've never been able to find any information anywhere. The only thing I can think of is that, like, maybe they thought to an American audience, like, the name Henry sounded, like, better for, like, a protagonist than, like, Victor. Villains get named Victor. Heroes get named Henry. When really, like, heroes are victorious. Sure. <laughs> Anyways. For me, the first half of the film is excellent. Like, it's dark, it's macabre, it's got, like, a really quick pace uh, to the editing that really keeps the story alive and moving. You know, James Whale's constantly cutting. He's constantly moving to new shots. He's keeping the camera moving. He's kind of trying to keep the film alive and avoid being bogged down in the dialogue, like Dracula was. And the fact that, like, both Whale and Colin Clive were gay, for me, gives, like, this really palpable subtext to that film's first half, which focuses on Henry's need to create life by himself with his own hands and his seeming reluctance to do what his family wants, which is get on with being married. The The editing and the camera movement and the utilization of all these techniques, to me, like, really says that, you know, James Whale wasn't just making a silent movie in sound, which is kind of what Todd Browning was doing with Dracula. Like, James Whale knows how to make a sound film because, you know, he's come from theater and then come in and he knows, you know, even when adapting from a play, like, what are the pitfalls of theater and then how to use film techniques to kind of get around those to keep things more lively. Yeah, I think, like, with talking about editing as well, like, I really noticed that this film has weird cuts. And I'll say weird because it's not standard, but I think... Like, it's it's not weird for the film, you know? Sure. It's not like, oh, that was a weird thing. That It's like... It's just that it's not doing, like, standard continuity editing. Yeah, yeah. So, like, the best example would be, like, when we first see the creature's face. Yeah. And we get, like, uh, we see Karloff come in backwards and then turn around, and then we get a cut closer to his face, and I think we get, like, another one or two yeah. that are just closer to his face. Yes. And, and then it cuts back out far. Yeah, and it, it's definitely to make, like, an impact of the horror of seeing this face, mm-hmm. um, this walking corpse, as mm-hmm. it were. But we see other weird editing that's like that, but not for that same purpose. Yeah. So, for example, there's this one part, I think it's, like, near the party. Frankenstein has his back to the room and is talking with a group of people, and Elizabeth comes in. Right, it's, uh, she has concerns before the wedding, so Mm -hmm. she's coming in. And we just get this one shot that's not, as far as I can tell, not just, like, taken from the standard reaction shot. Like, it's set up, so he turns and says Elizabeth at, like, a mid, in this mid shot. And, uh, to, like, show, like, his reaction to her more clearly, I guess. Mm Mm-hmm. Or even the, like, you know, we see him approach his friend Victor to say, like, you know, whatever happens, I leave her in your care. And then we get this second shot that's, like, a medium close-up of, you hear me? She's in your care. Yeah. And I think that these examples show how Will and his editor are trying to use this as a way of, like, keeping 
the film moving, like you were saying, keeping it a, it a bit more alive and not just like a play on film. Mm-hmm. But it also feels a little bit like a soap opera kind of editing. Okay. You know, like the, mm, what you say? Mm-hmm. Like someone gets shot and then you like see their reaction to like being shot. And then another framing of them turning around in reaction to someone shooting them. Right. That's kind of what I mean by soap opera feel. I think, like, where that's coming from is the fact that where soap opera editing comes from is melodrama film. And melodramas edit their moments to have, like, the maximum dramatic impact, right? And I think what you're seeing is the beginnings of that style here, right? Because, like, this is a very melodramatic film. So you're almost like seeing a trend at its origin in a way, I think, because, Mm -hmm. you know, the reason why we make fun of soap opera stuff is because it's soap operas and we're like, oh, that's so stupid and cliche (laughs) and, and cheesy or whatever. But like the reason why soap operas did them was because they were proven to be effective. Yeah. Right. And I think what's interesting with this film is the acting is just as subtle as Browning's Dracula. Mm-hmm. It's not over the top like Spanish Dracula, mm-hmm. but it feels more um, alive because of this editing. Yeah, for sure. And I think that Colin Clive will give a speech, right? And he'll be all manic and, and crazed. And like Whale will do things like cut within his speech to shots that are still of Colin Clive, that aren't reactions, but are maybe just closer and from a slightly different angle, right? So that the editing really builds things up, even though he doesn't have, like, a lot of options in terms of what to put on the screen visually, because it's just people standing around talking. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I really find, like, the first half of the film works like gangbusters for me, and I, what I'm about to talk about, and I'm gonna see if you agree with me, is I think this film kind of falls apart in the back half. So what are you calling the back half? So where I'm kind of dividing the line is everything after Henry gets pulled away from the watchtower and is back in the village. For me, the second half of the story, what I'm calling the second half, I don't know if this actually like lines up with the running time, is the part of the story that's focused on the marriage and Frankenstein's family. Mm-hmm. And for me, this is weaker than the first half that's focused on creating the monster and the early days of of this creature, right? Yeah. For one thing, the second half of the movie involves much more Baron Frankenstein, who is the film's comic relief. And, like, I don't know about you, but, like, Baron Frankenstein is nearly unbearable with his doddering old fool act for me. Yeah, it's an experience. I, I really hate it. <laughs> it's, it's for me, like, definitely one of the, like, you know, it's like Martin in Dracula. It's definitely that, like, we need to have a comic relief character here feeling. But it's too much. Well, you keep waiting for a moment where Henry's going to stand up to him, and it never comes. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's the signal that you can tell that audiences of the time were supposed to actually like the Baron and find him, like, charming instead of insufferable. But for me, like, all I want is for Henry to, like, stand up in his face and be like, shut the fuck up. Yeah. (laughs) Totally with you about the dad being an unbearable comic relief. I think this weird tone shift from gothic horror beginning Mm -hmm. to planning a wedding second half is, like, we know, as the audience, that the creature has lived. Mm -hmm. 
And so we're supposed to be feeling it of a feeling of dread underneath that. Yeah. And I think that's why there's so much comic relief mm. to help alleviate that feeling of dread, ironically, which is why it's like, this is a horror movie. We shouldn't be having so much of this. Yeah. It's, I see what you're totally saying. I think they are like trying to go for that dramatic irony. I feel like in the back half, the script begins to show a lot of the weak joints between elements. And I kind of want to draw attention to some of them. Cool. And if you think that any of these are too nitpicky, you can just cut them out of the episode. <laughs> Goldstadt Medical College, which is based on the University of Ingolstadt, where the novel is set, seems to be like walking distance from the abandoned watchtower where Henry has his laboratory. Yeah. Which then also seems to be like easy walking distance to Castle Frankenstein and its village. Everyone can just kind of easily walk between all these locations. The main characters, who are all essentially, like, aristocratic, they have these, you know, British accents, which, like, that's a pretty common American trope to just make any aristocrat British-sounding. They also dress in these very smart, contemporary fashions. And, of course, the, the lab is filled with modern electronic equipment. Mm -hmm. But then the villagers are all dressed in traditional Germanic folk clothes, and they have a very distinctly, like, feudal relationship with Baron Frankenstein, right? Like, the whole village is going to celebrate his son's wedding. And it's worth saying that, like, all titles of nobility were abolished in Germany in 1919 when the Weimar Republic came into effect. So this leads me to a question that I ask a lot when I watch Universal Horror movies. Um, where is this? And more significantly... What year is it? <laughs> like, yeah, like this one, this one I feel like you could lampshade it by being like, well, they're celebrating, they're in Germany, so they're right. wearing traditional clothing. But this definitely starts the trend of like, when you get to Wolfman. Yeah, where right? it's Where like, like everyone's in 50s clothing except the villagers. It, it's shocking to me how long this trope lasts, that like, Europe is just the Middle Ages. The plot contrivances start to come really fast and furious as the film barrels towards its climax. Like, why does the monster attack Elizabeth? And how does he even find her or know where to go or know who she is? Like, it's a major incident in the novel, so I see why it's in the film. But the film, because they've changed so much about who the monster is and what his origins are... It's, like, totally unmotivated in the movie, other than providing the requisite woman-threatened-by-monster moment. So, like, because he also doesn't outright attack her, he just kind of, like, shows up, she's screaming, and he's like, Ugh. Oh, shit! Uh, I feel like it's kind of, like, um, happenstance a little bit. Right. Right? Kind of like with what happened with Maria, right? Like, he goes in, he doesn't break in, like, her windows just happen to be open, mm -hmm. and she's, like, pacing back and forth, and he's just kind of walking up, being like, oh, flower? And just, like, not, like, whatever. Yeah. She turns around and starts screaming, and it's, he's like, stop screaming, and, like, goes to cover her mouth, right? Like, he, yes, he's guilty of killing Maria, but that's, like, manslaughter yes. versus murder. For sure. Right? Mm -hmm. And, like, I, I totally see what you're saying. It, It's not as powerful in the film as it is in the novel because he has no malicious intent. He's just a bumbling child. Yeah, like, I, like the monster threatening Elizabeth is supposed to be, like, I feel like the big moment of, like, 
horror in the movie, right? Of like, oh, the monster's coming for the defenseless damsel. And I think you're totally right in saying that, like, you can interpret it in the film in the context of the way Karloff portrays the monster. But once you interpret it in that way, like, it's no longer the big scary scene, right? And I think it just becomes very, like, vestigial. See, I think the big scene that you're craving mm -hmm. of, like, monster being malicious, etc., it comes when they're hunting the creature down in the mountains, mm -hmm. and Frankenstein and the creature meet. Yeah. And, like, you know the creature recognizes Frankenstein mm -hmm. and goes to attack him on purpose. Mm -hmm. So I think that's the moment, especially with the way that it's cut, because it shows, like, a close-up on both of their faces. Yeah, for sure, for sure. I think, like, the way that the mob is out there looking for the monster, <laughs> like, torches in hand, in retaliation for this stuff, like, the, the movie, and I mentioned it in my plot summary, but the way the movie kind of, like, glosses over his culpability and, like, how much he's told the villagers and how, res how much responsibility he's going to take for any of this. And we also mentioned that, like, that climax is kind of marred by the poor quality of the soundstage they're on, which has, like, wrinkles in the sky psych and catches, like, the shadows of people running by and, like, has this echoing sound. It's really the echoing sound that really bothers me. But, I mean, like, part of that is also, like, this is relatively early in sound film. Mm -hmm. Would they have realized that they need to yeah, I feel fix like, stuff like that yet? Yeah, I, I, ADR definitely doesn't exist yet, and I think films like this are why people realize they had to do that kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah, yeah. As Frankenstein and the monster get trapped in the windmill, it kind of feels to me like the film itself has become trapped, like, without <laughs> being able to figure out where to go or how to end this thing. That scene in the windmill, where they're standing across from each other, looking at each other through the, like, gears of the mechanism. I like, love it. It's a great moment, but that's really the moment I wish the most where the two had been allowed to speak to each other. Where we could have had Frankenstein try to explain himself to his creation, and the monster kind of air his grievances with Frankenstein. Like, that would really be able to fulfill the promise of the themes that this movie kind of brings up, but never quite manages to reconcile. I wonder if that's also why you feel like the film falls apart, because you've talked about how the beginning, it relies so much on the dialogue, but uses editing to keep the pace going. It With the second half, the dialogue becomes, so when you're getting hitched, <laughs> slash... Let's just look across the, the windmill at each other. There's mm -hmm. no dialogue to offer up the ramping up. So it, it would be odd to be cutting closer and closer to individuals' faces as they aren't talking. I also feel that, like, it's a, it's a push-pull between the fact that this is a very intellectual film with a lot of philosophical things to talk about. But then it needs to end in, like, a big action sequence, essentially. Or, like, the 1930s equivalent of a big <laughs> action sequence. And what I think is interesting, I mentioned earlier how pretty much every character in this film gets a moment to be horrific. Mm. The villagers get that part, too. Oh, here. absolutely. They are, like, terrorizing mm -hmm. this creature. And, like, they don't realize it really because they think he's, like, they don't really know what he is. Yeah. The way the creature is screaming inside, like, yeah. 
if you heard that, you would know that you're terrorizing basically a child. Like, yeah. Like, or at least, like, a, a, an animal who doesn't know better, right? Like, yeah, that's also why I feel like, like, this movie's definitely horror. It always falls more tragic to me than a horror film like Dracula. So I think that's, like, a perfect segue into talking about, the two of us talking about, like, what do we think is meant to be scary in this movie? Like, what is the central fear? Hmm. I don't think it's the monster. I think the studio wants it to be. Yeah, absolutely. Like, that's certainly how the film is, you know, marketed. And yeah, that's, yeah. Right? But, like, despite his horrific appearance and his violent nature, he's so obviously sympathetic. And it's it's not, like, accidentally sympathetic either, right? Like, the film clearly means for you to sympathize with him. And so many people have come away from watching this movie having sympathized with Karloff, like, it's, that's on purpose, right? I think the fear for, and I'll see if you agree with this, I think the fear of Frankenstein, the film, the experience of what it's like to be an outsider and an outcast in a society that doesn't understand you and hates you. And that's a fear that's felt by characters throughout the film, like Fritz, but more significantly by the monster, by Henry Frankenstein himself, by Colin Clive, and by James Whale. Yeah, my first thought was that the fear was human nature. Mm. Um, the I forget which philosopher it is, but the person who is like, humans are inherently mean and evil. Right. I personally don't agree that people are inherently evil or mm. bad, but I think this film is like, but what if they are? Hmm. And I think that ties in with um, your theory of it being, like, these outsiders and stuff. Because mine is, like, what if human nature was inherently without compassion? Mm -hmm. And compassion is clearly what uh, the creature needs. Compassion is what would break that cycle of abuse we've identified. Yeah, I think that another thing this film is talking about is the way that violence arises from fear, mm -hmm. right? Like, everything that the creature does that's violent comes from a place of fear or ignorance, and everything that the villagers do that's violent comes from that place of fear or ignorance, right? Like, they don't know what the creature is, they just know they're afraid of it. And I think that if there's something that this film is telling us to be wary of, it's fear and ignorance, right? Like, Waldman is convinced the creature has to be destroyed because he's afraid of what it might turn out to be, not what it is. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he's ignorant of how the way that the creature suffers. And, you know, people persecute Henry Frankenstein because they're ignorant of what he's trying to do and they're afraid of what it might be. And I feel like the victims in this film are Henry Frankenstein and the creature. And, you know in a re very real way, like, the mob at the end of the film are the real monsters, in a way. Although they themselves are just acting out of fear. Yeah. Uh, so I think, you know, if this film's about anything, it's, it's... <laughs> like, this is, this is, like, this film is, is the Teddy Roosevelt quote about, like, we have nothing to fear but fear itself. <laughs> um, yeah. Or maybe that was Franklin Roosevelt. I don't know. I think you make a, a really great connection, though, to how James Whale and Colin Clive would have felt as gay men. Because mm -hmm. Colin Clive was closeted, for mm -hmm. lack of a better word, and then, yeah. like, 
James Whale, was he completely out? Yeah, he was He was out. Like, he was totally out. Like, everybody knew that James Whale was gay. Okay. I think your um, idea about outcasts, I think that's um, not even, like, a theory. I think that's, like, explicit theme. Yeah, So I think that's sure. great. Do we, do we want to move into ranking? Sure. I think just the obvious place to start is, like, better or worse than Dracula, right? Like, that... Do we even need to address any other films, or can we just jump to better or worse than Dracula? <laughs> so at the at the start of this, you were you were saying that you prefer Dracula to this, which surprised me because I feel like I've always preferred Dracula to this. Like I'm a bigger fan of Dracula than this movie, but in watching it and analyzing it and sitting down with it and taking it apart, I've kind of convinced myself that this is the better movie. <laughs> uh, like I think that. James Wales made a better film than Dracula, and like not just because he has a better handle on sound film direction than Browning did, but because Whale uses his horror film to do more than just scare us, right? He uses it to make a statement. Like, Frankenstein has something to say in a way that Dracula didn't, right? Dracula just wants to scare us, and the thing it wants us to be afraid of is foreigners... Like, yeah. whereas, like, Frankenstein wants us to think about these themes that it's brought up. Yeah, I mean, so part of the reason why I started this off with, like, saying that, like, I, I might prefer Dracula is because Dracula, it's like, you know, you sit down, you get scared, yeah. you're good. This is like, oh man, what if we are all inherently evil? What, <laughs> what do we do? And then, like thinking about, like, the awful shit in the world, right? Like, it, it's a bit more close to home. Dracula's, like, I can see why, you know, a gut reaction would be say that Dracula's the better horror movie, because Dracula is just out to scare you. Yeah, yeah. Right? Like, you're you're there to be spooked. Like, Dracula is a spookier movie than Frankenstein, right? Yeah. Like, but I think Frankenstein leaves you with, a little bit more... To, it has more meat on its bones, you know? Is that because it's a collection of corpses rather than a <laughs> walking singu singular corpse? <laughs> Frankenstein's also, like, more violent than Dracula. Like, there's, oh, there's yeah. a lot more, like, on-screen violence going on. Like, yeah, I, I feel like they were like, cool, that's what we got away with with Dracula. Let's just see how far we can go. Yeah, like, Dracula was a success, and they were like, oh, okay, good, nobody, like... Nobody, you know, Got came, mad at yeah, us. exactly. Let's let's ramp it up. Like, <laughs> absolutely, that's what this movie feels like. Okay, I think I think where you're leading the discussion <laughs> is that Frankenstein should go above Dracula. That's kind of where I'm feeling. Yeah, I'm in agreement. Okay, but now what about Phantom Carriage? Because they both are saying something about human nature, right? Yes. That said, I've got problems with Frankenstein structurally and on, like, plotting levels. And also, like, Phantom Carriage doesn't have weird attempts at comic relief. And, like, I think fits together a lot more smoothly than Frankenstein does. Where, like, I feel like Frankenstein, what it tries to do is engender enough goodwill and move the story along quickly enough that we don't notice the moments where the seams show. Mm. Um, and Phantom Carriage doesn't really have those moments. 
I'd probably rather watch Frankenstein than Phantom Carriage, because Phantom Carriage is a, a draining experience. But I think that, like, as a film, Phantom Carriage is probably, like, put together better. That's sort of where I'm feeling. Alright, so because of Baron Frankenstein, the film Frankenstein goes underneath Phantom Carriage, but because of everything else, it goes above Dracula. Yeah, and, like... I'm a big fan of Dracula. Like, I love that movie. I watch Dracula more often than I watch Frankenstein. Yeah, I'm really surprised. But, like... I thought for sure it was going to go below. But, like, yeah, I just... I think that Frankenstein's got a little bit more of a head on its shoulders. Ironically. <laughs> it's abnormal brain. <laughs> Abby normal. Abby normal. <laughs> uh, okay, so, yeah, coming into the list at number two, we have Frankenstein... From 1931, directed by James Whale. If you'd like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can also send in an appeal or suggestion through our appeal box. If you would really like to contest this, um, please send us a note and tell us why. I would love to hear from you. If you don't like Tumblr, you can email us at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com. And feel free to chat over Twitter. Uh, you can follow us at underscore Scream Scene. We'd love to talk on and on about films, as you can tell. So uh, we'd love to talk to you directly. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday and is available on iTunes and SoundCloud. We'd love to get comments and reviews and hear feedback from you. Uh, and if you can... Leave a review on iTunes, it helps the show get seen by more people, uh, but the best way to share the show is to just tell your friends about it, tell people who you think might enjoy it. We really appreciate all of our listeners, and we want that family to grow. So, uh, next week we're watching Spanish Frankenstein. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> what are we watching next week? So next week, Sarah... Mm-hmm. We've got a real special treat. Uh, I've, I, I super... You say that every week? That's because we're in the early 30s, and it's the golden age of horror cinema, Sarah. <laughs> we have a huge treat next week. Uh, it's also from 1931, <laughs> and it's directed by Robert Mamoulian, and it's not from Universal. It's from a competing studio, uh, someone getting in on the trend now that Universal's had two hits, uh, and it, it stars... Frederick March, and it's uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Yes! Yeah, this film is really, uh, really good and is going to give us a lot of things to talk about. Ooh, Angela Lansbury! Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's, yes. it's great. So we will see you next week for Jekyll and Hyde, uh, but till then... Stay spooky, creatures of the night. <laughs> that was a good one. Alright, bye! <laughs> bye! Bye!